0: Galatians chapter 6 today, and today's message is entitled, The Secret to Battling Sin. If you've been with us, you know that we've been going verse by verse through the book of Galatians. And Paul wrote this letter because of a big problem among the Galatian churches. They were being swayed by false teachers, trying to earn what God had already given them at salvation, trying to earn a right standing with God, trying to earn God's blessings by following the law. And so Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, verse 3 Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? In other words, God did the work of saving you. You cannot add anything to his finished work. It's just grace plus nothing equals salvation and obedience. Any good works that we do, any obedience that we have, any sacrifices that we make, they are not prerequisites of our salvation, but they're the result of our salvation. The result of the Holy Spirit working in us and through us. Now, as we get towards the end of Paul's letter to the Galatians, he gives us some very practical commands. Last week, we read in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, Paul said, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You see, as Christians, because we are saved, we are to walk in the Spirit, which simply means to follow and obey God's leading in all things. And when we do that, we will stop obeying the flesh because you can't do both. You can't follow both the flesh and the spirit. Now, today in chapter six, we'll look a little bit closer at how we can walk in the spirit, what that looks like. And we'll also discuss how God wants us to serve and love others. We'll talk about the best tactic for fighting against temptation and sin And we'll talk about why legalism is so tempting for you and I to fall into. So let's jump in in Galatians chapter 6. In verses 1 through 5, we read about bearing and sharing burdens. Galatians 6 verse 1. Paul says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Now, to be overtaken in sin is is not the person who willfully pursues and desires sin, but it's somebody who has stumbled. They're faltering in their walk. It's a Christian who has, for whatever reason, fallen into sin. It's the place that Paul described himself in Romans chapter 7, verse 19 in the New Living Translation. Paul says, I want to do what is good or right, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong or sinful, but I do it anyway. He felt stuck, overtaken in sin. Now, remember, this letter of Galatians is all about the law versus grace. So let's compare how the legalist responds to a brother overtaken in sin with how a spirit-filled Christian would respond to a brother overtaken in sin. You see, the legalist would focus on the sin, on the problem. You crossed the line. The spirit-led would focus on the Savior, focusing on the solution. The legalist would say, I'm glad I'm not overtaken like you are. The spirit-led would say, let me help you get back on track. The legalist would say, your failure makes me look better because I didn't break the rules like you did. The spirit-led would say, let me help you be restored in Christ. The legalist would say, it's a good thing that I'm more spiritual than you. The spirit-led would say, it could just as well be me. Nobody is immune to temptation or sin except Jesus. The legalist would say, let me give you some laws and rules that you can follow so you can try harder and not mess up next time. The spirit-led would say, you can't fix it, but Jesus can. And so pray to Jesus for both the desire and the power to repent. Well, church, I don't know about you, but I know which friend I would like When I'm the one overtaken in sin, Paul exhorts you and I to be spirit led when we help others out of their sin. And the goal is to restore them, to restore them, to help them once again stand in God's grace and walk in his spirit. Look with me at verse two it says, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? Well, Paul told us last week in Galatians 5, 14, he said, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In the Bible, your first fill in the blank on your note sheet, in the Bible, love is not an emotion. It's not a feeling. It's a choice and action. Love is a choice and action. And here, Paul says that you love one another when you bear one another's burdens, when you help those who are weighed down, those who are discouraged, those who are struggling or anxious or weak. Paul goes on in verse 3, and he says, For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Now, The idea here is not that some people are something and others aren't. No, the idea is we're all nothing. There should be no boasting in ourselves. Our only boast should be in Jesus. The legalist looks at the brother overtaken in sin and says, I'm not like them. I'm better. They need to be more like me. The legalist is prideful, and that pride prevents him from bearing the burdens of others. In fact, instead of helping others bear their burdens, the legalist tends to add to the burdens. Jesus said of the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, verse 4, he said, "...for they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers." The way a legalist treats a sinner is by laying on more burdens. Well, you should do this and that and try harder and measure up. But the way grace treats a sinner is by helping them to bear those burdens. Verse 4, Paul says, But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. We should not compare our work With others, like the legalists do. Focus on your own work, test your own heart, and make sure that you are loving God and loving others with pure motives. And then Paul says in verse 5 For each one shall bear his own load. So in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, Paul said, Bear one another's burdens. And here in verse 5, he says, bear your own load. Well, which one is it? Bear another's burdens or bear our own load? Well, it's both. It's both of them, but in a healthy balance. You see, you can err in either direction. If you emphasize bearing one another's burdens, then you might neglect your own responsibility, thinking, well, you guys really ought to be helping me bear my burdens. So could you pick up the slack? Can you take care of me? Can you take care of everything that I need? And you're seeking to manipulate others, maybe even unknowingly, expecting others to carry you, making excuses for why you are not bearing your own load. That would be a mistake. But on the other side, if you emphasize bearing your own load and you're trying so hard to just do it all, you're refusing to let others help you. Your pride is preventing you from admitting that you're struggling. You need help, and this also would be a mistake. So don't err by neglecting your duties, and don't err by refusing to let others help you. So, church, bear your own load. When you need help, ask. When you see a struggling brother or sister, serve, help them, and you will fulfill the law of Christ." Now in verses 6 through 10, we read about how you reap what you sow. Verse 6, Paul says, Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Excuse me. In the context of loving one another, Paul gives a very specific application. Paul says that it's God's desire for the local church to support its pastors and teachers. And so on behalf of all of our paid staff, we just want to say thank you for being a church that gives as the Lord leads. I'm so blessed to get a paycheck that allows me the time and energy to prepare these messages each week. I'm so blessed that we don't have to pass an offering plate around each Sunday, but we just have a box in the back. And the Lord leads, and the Lord provides, and the Lord is taking care of the church facility and the church staff needs. Praise the Lord. So thank you for being a church that shares all good things with him who teaches. Keep it up. Now, verse 7, Paul says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Now, in the context of this passage, Paul's still talking about the church providing for the pastor. And so he's emphasizing that you harvest what you plant. So give your time, give your money, give your energy to spiritual things. Don't waste it all on earthly things. But these two verses also have a much broader application of how to grow spiritually. In life, if you plant corn, guess what? You're not going to get watermelon. That's not how it works. We all know that. And so I ask you, what kind of seed are you planting in your heart? What are you watching on TV? What are you listening to? on radio, or podcast? What are you scrolling on your phone? What kind of thoughts do you entertain? You've heard it said that you are what you eat. The input affects the output. Well, what you abide in determines what kind of fruit you bear. And that's your next fill in the blank. Stay. What you abide in determines what kind of fruit you bear. And yet, sometimes we are shocked at our own sin. Just in case, you're going to switch now. Switch to that and I'll replace the cable. It's stuck. Check. Sorry. Mike, everybody. All right, we're going old school. So sometimes we're shocked at our own sin. We ask, where did that outburst of wrath come from? Where did that lustful thought originate? Why can't I stop gossiping? Well, perhaps you've been planting of the flesh. So why are you surprised that you're harvesting of the flesh? Notice that verse 7 starts with, do not be deceived. Why would it say that? Well, it's because we sometimes are deceived. It's easy to deceive ourselves. We think that what we watch on TV, it's no big deal. It's not like we're doing the sin. We're just being entertained, we might say. Well, Paul says, "Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. You will harvest what you plant." This passage gives us the secret for battling sin. Your next fill-in-the-blank on your note sheet. Here's the secret. Starve the flesh, feed the spirit. Starve the flesh, feed the spirit. The Bible says that there is a constant war going on inside of every Christian. The battle of the flesh versus the spirit. Even as Christians headed for heaven, we still battle our flesh until we get there. Every day we're choosing either to feed our flesh or our spirit. The more we feast on this world, the more that we serve ourselves, the stronger our flesh gets, the weaker our spirit gets. Our flesh wins that daily battle because it's well fed and stronger than our spirit. On the other hand, the more we feast on God's word, the more we pray and serve worship, and enjoy godly fellowship, the stronger our spirit gets, the weaker our flesh gets. It becomes easier and easier to ignore the flesh, to turn away from temptation. It's easier to walk in the Spirit because we've been sowing to the Spirit. And so, church, which one are you feeding? The flesh or the Spirit? In many ways, sin is just the external symptom of a heart problem. Sin is the bad fruit that we harvest when we plant of the flesh. So do you want to sin less? Do you want to find victory? Don't fight the symptom, your external sin. Fight the source, your heart. Stop giving your flesh what it wants. Don't let your flesh be your master. In this battle against sin, there are two mistakes that we need to avoid. Mistake number one, focus on your fruit rather than your vine. That's a mistake. Don't focus on your fruit because your roots determine your fruits. Don't try to stop sinning by trying harder. It won't work. Instead, look for ways to deny your flesh and feed your spirit. Pull your roots out of the world and plant yourself in God's word. Find more ways to abide in Jesus, and you'll be amazed at the fruit that he produces in you and through you. In this battle against sin, here's the second mistake that we tend to make, is we expect immediate results. Lord, I've read your Bible for like five minutes, and I don't understand why I still am a sinner. That's a mistake. Now, God can miraculously deliver you from a sin or temptation in a moment. He can, but that's usually the exception to the rule. Most often, it's a process as we allow the Holy Spirit to change our bad fruit into good fruit. That's why Paul says in the very next verse, Galatians 6, verse 9, he says, And let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Don't lose heart. Keep starving the flesh, keep feeding the spirit. Don't let discouragement wear you down. Don't believe the lie that says it's not working. Maybe it works for that guy, but it's not working for me. It's not worth the effort. Paul says, in due season, you shall reap, but only if you do not lose heart. And so Paul continues in verse 10. Paul says, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. What opportunities has God given you? Who is he put in your life? Who do you see that is bearing a heavy burden? How can you help them? How might you do good to all? The legalist looks at others to determine who's better, who's more spiritual. Instead, we should look at others to decide who can we serve, how can we love, How can we represent Jesus? During the Last Supper, on the night of Jesus' arrest, we read in Luke chapter 22, verse 24, during that time, it says, Now there was also a dispute among the disciples as to which of them should be considered the greatest. So on the night of Jesus' arrest, he's about to be arrested and then beaten and mocked and murdered. And his 12 disciples are squabbling over which of them is the greatest. But Jesus doesn't start flipping tables. That was earlier in the ministry. He doesn't yell at them. Instead, we read what he does in John 13, verses 4 and 5. Jesus rose from supper and laid aside his garments. He took a towel and girded himself. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. Began to serve them in a place of humility. If you want to please man, then look spiritual. Make yourself stand apart. But if you want to please God, then grab a towel and start serving. Start serving others. It's why Paul told us last week in Galatians chapter 5 verse 13, Paul said, for you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty... As an opportunity for the flesh, don't use your liberty to serve your sin nature, but through love, serve one another. That's our call. That's God's command. Now as we get to the end of Galatians, verses 11 through 18, we read about Paul's conclusion. Verse 11, Paul says, See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. Now, Paul's custom was to verbally speak this letter while a scribe was writing down his words. But we can imagine Paul pacing the room, reciting this out loud, and the scribe is writing down, and then Paul leans over himself, and he writes this verse. And he says, see with what large letters I'm writing. He was authenticating this message, proving it wasn't from an imposter. This really was from the apostle Paul. And so, verse 12, Paul says, As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. The false teachers tried to force Gentile Christians to be circumcised. They told them it was necessary for them to please God. And here, Paul reveals one of their motives. Well, they taught this because they wanted to avoid persecution. If they taught salvation by grace, like Paul, then they would suffer persecution. So, they preached legalism. They said, yeah, we're saved by grace, but you really need to add to that circumcision and eating kosher and obeying the Sabbaths. And they had enough of the law where the persecutors said, you're okay with us. And they weren't persecuted for it. And so verse 13, Paul says, For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. You see, the temptation for legalism is the ability to boast in the flesh to focus on what separates one Christian from the rest of Christians. Pastor Larry Osborne says it this way. He says, Pharisees love a litmus test. Always have, always will. In the days of Jesus, their rigid rules and extra-biblical standards gave them a quick and easy way to distinguish between the godly and the ungodly, the committed and the uncommitted, It allowed them to know who was in and who was out. For a Pharisee, the most important thing was to be numbered among the spiritually elite. Their worst nightmare was to be stuck in the middle of the pack, numbered among the commoners. Their self-worth was inextricably tied to their ability to differentiate themselves from others. They assumed that only the elite could earn God's favor. So they came up with lots of boundary markers and litmus tests to prove to themselves and to others that they were indeed more committed than most. That was the problem with the Pharisees, with the Judaizers, with the legalists of Paul's day. They believed that because they were circumcised, they were a cut above the rest, pun intended. Because they followed the Jewish Sabbaths and they ate kosher, they believed themselves to be set apart, were extra special Christians. It gave them an easy way to see who they thought were really committed to Jesus. And it happened to put themselves on the top of the list. And that's the problem. Your next fill in the blank. You see, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. That means Jesus is the only one that's elevated. Every other Christian, every other one that kneels before Jesus, we're all on level ground. Nobody is higher than another. No individual Christian is more holy than another because we're all sinners. We're all saved by grace through faith, and we were all declared righteous by Jesus' work. Not by our sacrifice, not by our obedience, not by us trying hard. No Christian should be lifted up. No Christian should be put on a pedestal. No Christian should be praised. The only one who should be praised is Jesus. The word on the street is, if you really want to be committed to Christ, then you'll go to Bible college. You'll become a pastor or a missionary or a worship leader but I don't see that in Scripture. The word in the Bible is, if you want to be a really committed Christian, love God and love others. That's it. That's it. You see, God gives us each different gifts and talents and unique callings, but each of our unique callings fit under God's call for all of us to love Him and to love others. None of us have a higher calling than somebody else. Let me say that again. None of us have a higher calling than somebody else. Whatever God is telling you specifically to do, that is your higher calling. You are responsible for obeying what God is putting on your heart. You're not responsible for what God's putting on my heart. You should never boast or take pride in your obedience to him nor in your sacrifices for him, nor compare your obedience with that of other Christians, you'll end up self-glorified or self-condemned, puffed up or beaten up. Your boast should be in Christ alone. And that is Paul's next point. Look at verse 14. Paul says in Galatians 6, 14, But God forbid that I should boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. Jesus is our boast. Do you want to take pride in something? Don't let it be in something you have done, but let it be in what Jesus has done both for you and in you. Notice that Paul specifically says he will glory in the cross. In the cross Take a moment and just try to forget that we have been surrounded by the cross as being a good thing, saved by the cross. Imagine you're living in the Roman Empire. You don't even like to use the word cross because it's such a horrible way to die. Crucifixion, it was excruciating, slow, humiliating death. And yet Paul says he glories in the cross. By doing so, Paul is not only emphasizing Jesus' sacrifice by going to the cross for us, but Paul is also emphasizing his own sin, his own desperate need for Jesus to do the unthinkable, to go to the cross on his behalf. The legalist would say, I'm pretty good. Look at all my sacrifices. But Paul says, I'm a sinner. Look at Jesus' sacrifice. And so Paul continues in verse 15. Paul says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. Following the law can't help you because none of us measure up. But, Paul says, a new creation. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. If you are a Christian, if you've put your faith in Jesus, then you are a new creation in him. You cannot add to that newness by your works of the flesh. The flesh is the old you. Your works no longer define who you are. It's Jesus' work that defines who you are. You're a new creation. You are righteous in him. Now, my wife loves to garden And she starts all of her plants as little seeds. Some grow really fast. Others take a much slower approach. Some bear lots of fruit, others only a little. But she loves all of her plants. She treasures each of them. They're hers. And this is a great picture of us in Christ. Some of us bear lots of fruit. Some of us bear little fruit. Some of us grow faster than others. And it's at this point that Satan wants you to ask, what makes me better than others? What is it that separates me from other Christians? What is one or two things that I'm really good at that others aren't so good at? Why am I spiritually taller, faster, or more fruitful than others? Why am I more deserving of God's favor? Each of those questions are rooted in one thing, pride. Don't take any credit for what God has done in you or through you. Don't take credit for how fast you grow or how much fruit you see. You're simply a new creation in Jesus. Jesus wants you to ask, what's next? What's next? Okay, Lord, I see what you've done in my life. Praise you, you've done that, but what's next? What are you telling me to do now? You see, the legalist tends to get comfortable. Say, look at what all I've done. Look at how spiritual I am. Look at how far I've come. I'm the best. And yet Jesus says, there's a lot more work to keep going. And so what's next? He wants you to say, Lord, what do you want me to do? What is my next step? of obedience to you. I'm yours, Jesus. Guide me and fill me and use me, not for my glory, but for your glory. Paul says in the next verse, verse 17, From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. The legalists claimed they were true Christians because they were circumcised. Paul says he's a true Christian because his faith has been tested with persecution. He's been beaten and whipped and chased out of town. Paul says his faith is proven by his scars for Jesus, not his scars by trying to follow the law. Verse 18, Paul says, Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, amen. What a great way to end this letter. For six chapters, Paul has pointed the Galatians to God's grace, and so he ends it all saying, may this grace be with you. May that grace be with you. Don't focus on your fruit. Don't compare your fruit with others. Just focus on Jesus. Abide in him. Starve your flesh, Feed your spirit, stand in his grace, walk in the Holy Spirit, and let Jesus prune you so that you will become even more fruitful, not so that you're better than others, not so that you look more spiritual than others, but so that God is more glorified in your life and through your life. It's all about his glory, and it's for his name. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your grace. Lord, thank you that you gave us the law, not so that we could try to measure up, but so that you could reveal to us just how sinful we are. God, that we all fall short, that none can be made righteous by trying to follow the do's and don'ts of the law. And so, Jesus, you came and you fulfilled the law on our behalf. God, you did the work that we could not, and yet, even though you were perfect, you died on the cross in our place, taking our punishment upon yourself, and then you rose from the dead. Lord, thank you for doing what we could not. Thank you for creating a way for us to be saved by entering in to the holiest of all through you, by your blood, Jesus. And because you gave the sacrifice, we don't have to sacrifice. Lord, because you measured up, we don't have to measure up. We simply get to follow in on your tail by your grace and have a relationship with God. We are saved from punishment in hell and given eternal life in heaven because of your grace And so, Lord, would you help us to stand in that grace? To recognize that if we've put our faith in you, Jesus, then nothing can touch our position in you. We've been declared righteous. We've been declared holy by you. And Lord, because we are saved, would you help us to walk in your spirit? Would you help us to constantly ask that question, Lord, what's next? God, how can I starve my flesh and feed my spirit so that your name can be more glorified, so that my life can be more about you, Jesus? Lord, would you take us as we are, change us into more like you, and God, would you expand your kingdom? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.